It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! This episode is brought to you by Smart Food Popcorn. Some decisions aren't the best, like skipping ahead in your favorite podcast. Think of all the banter you'll miss, the lore in the making. Luckily, Smart Food Popcorn is a no-brainer. Deliciously tasty and available in a variety of fun flavors. It's a smart decision every time. Smart Food. Add smart. To learn more, visit smartfood.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's autumn, and the skirts of the hills here in the Brecon Beacons are patched and embroidered with gold, as small woods and hedges embrace their autumn colours. Just a few robins are singing now. All the other birds appear to have fallen silent. The air is much cooler now. There are atmospheric mists in the coombs below in the valley. You can really smell the changes coming over the landscape. Welcome to the podcast. The Nature and Countryside podcast from BBC Country Fire magazine. My name is Fergus Collins and I'm the host of the podcast, which is now in its seventh season. In this episode, we embrace the mystery and magic of autumn through stories and folklore. Such tales were often used to make sense of a complex and changing world throughout our history. And there's no one I know better to tell these stories than my old friend Martin Maudsley. Martin is a professional storyteller from Lancashire who now lives in Dorset, so he's a blend of north and south, and that can only be a good thing. He takes us on a wander into a landscape of lost lanes and forgotten hills and tells some tremendous tales of old. My name is Martin Maudsley. I'm a professional storyteller. I live at the edge of Bridport in West Dorset, and I'm standing in a Holloway. And the last time we met, I was in... Holloway uh, in early summer and we were following literary heroes. It's at the end of the afternoon, just the beginning of the beginning of dusk. It's just starting to go grey in the light department and um, it's the 1st of October and there's just beginning to be a wind that's heralding a bit of a storm coming our way, I think. You can probably just hear that, that whistling 
sound as the tops of the vegetation in the hollow way are, are bending around me and there's been a few spatterings of rain so I'm just setting out on a walk at the beginning of a, a dark and stormy night but that's pretty good for a storyteller and the name of this Holloway that I'm standing halfway up at the moment is called Blood Lane. I was delighted as um, someone who loves the resonance of names of things uh, to have such a strong name. And then I asked the locals why. And the, the consensus is that there was once a battle at the top of this hill. We're going up towards Bothan Hill now. And at some point in history, it's considered to be some point in Saxon history, whether it was... Saxons fighting Roman Celts after the, the Roman invasion or whether it was two tribes fighting each other but there was a battle and the fighting was so fierce and ferocious so many were killed at the top of the hill here that the blood ran down in a red rushing river and it's quite eerie because I can see the the sort of marks where water has, has runnelled through this the bottom of this hollowway and there's now a scattering of red haws from the, the, the hawthorn trees at the top of the hollow so it looks a little bit like there's droplets of blood and this kind of this gouged out river so you can imagine the the sense of a, of a fight going on i love um stories I, I i love telling stories that's my job but i also love collecting folklore and folk tales falling down into those rabbit holes where you you start searching for the for the source of a story and, and get different versions and find out you know lots of joy in the in the unscrambling of those deep mysterious stories that connect us with our landscapes I, I suppose that's i'm very lucky to live in dorset where there is lots of stories that have overlain our landscape for generations the people that have lived here have made sense of where they are and who they are by the the stories that they've told each other i see part of my job as a storyteller is to connect with the meaning of those stories that's that's left in the names and to go back into the places where they were first found first took root and sort of see if I can piece them together to use my own imagination as the storytellers in the past have done to make sense of the world around me so I'm going to go on a walk in my local patch try to remember some of the names of the places try to connect in with some of the stories, uh, tell you a few of the tales that I've gathered and re-pieced together. I've, I use a phrase called restoring the landscape, the sense that um, we still revel in those stories and if we go out and really connect with them imaginatively and using all our senses and creative juices, those stories can still come back to life and help us to, to reconnect with landscape. So I'm going to... Uh, puff on up to the top of this blood lane still thinking about those battles from a thousand years ago and then I'll take a look at the view and find a little local story that will help me to connect with my place in Dorset. So I've got to the top of blood lane and I did pop out uh, but the weather's got rather bad a bit we're a bit bedeviled by by rain uh, at the moment so I got a chance to have a look around, but I've dived back into the very top of the hollowway where there's this very generous sycamore tree, which has given me a lot of protection from the from the rain. So I'm snuggled in here at the top of the hollowway. I've still got a view out just through the dripping leaves of the tree. I can see the, the ridgeway just rising up um, ahead of me. But I've nestled down in the sort of 
the dry leaves underneath this tree and it's a good place to tell a story i've been a few times when i've been out doing a story walk where where the weather's come hard against us and we've sheltered underneath the tree and it's a lovely intimate space actually i'm going to tell you a story bearing in mind the ridgeway that stretches uh, above me now and connects into a longer ridgeway called the south dorset ridgeway with lots of little villages on the on the lower flanks and stretches on the on its way towards uh, weymouth full of archaeology full of history full of stories and full of folklore and i'm going to tell you a story from one of those little villages not that long ago, many folk in rural Dorset supplemented their poorly paid income from agricultural labour by foraging for food and hunting for wild game in the woodlands and common lands. They hunted for birds and deer, rabbits and hares, whatever fare was there for the taking, always in season, but not necessarily always legal. In the little village of Little Breedy, just below the ridgeway, was a group of men, four farm workers, who in the evenings when they could, hunted together. Not with guns, they couldn't afford them, but with hounds. Each man had his own dog, a long dog, a special Dorset breed that's well suited to hunting game. And in the old alliance between humankind and canine, the hunting was usually successful. More often than not, there was something to take home for the pot. Well, before setting out hunting with their dogs at dusk, the men were in the habit of leaving their farming tools in the old stone cottage of an old woman who lived by herself in the Valley of Stones. Snow-white hair and wind-weathered skin, she was so ancient that nobody could even remember a time when she wasn't alive. And there were some people in the villages suspicious small-minded folk who called her a witch and blamed her for all manner of mishaps and malaises that happened in the village. But then again, there were others that beat a path to her door and came to her for help in the secrecy of the night. And to all those who came, she listened unhurried, offered them herbal remedies or healing words. The four hunters themselves rarely saw the old woman. She was often away from the house at dusk. One evening in autumn, whilst hunting, the, the men caught a glimpse of something strange and mysterious. A pure white hare, racing across an open field and then darting down into the valley and disappearing into a copse of trees. Immediately the hunters sent their long dogs after the hare, but they never got close. She was too cunning, she was too quick, and they should have left it there, but sometimes men can be proud and stubborn. And the four of them, they wanted to prove themselves as, as good a hunter that they can be by catching the white hare. So they bided their time and they made a plan. And it was only a week or so later when the pieces of the plan fell into place. On a moist, misty evening at the very beginning of October with a harvest moon just rising huge and heavy above the ridgeway, they spotted once more the white hare nimbling along the edge of a hedge. Two of the men sent their dogs hurtling towards the hare to flush it out into the open. When the hare saw the dogs, she was startled, started to race away like lightning flashing, zigzagging across the field. And she soon outdistanced the chasing hounds and headed towards the only way of escaping from that field, a gap in the thick hedgerow of hawthorn and holly. The hare reached the gateway and was about to dart through but on the other side of the hedge were two more men with two more dogs. As she ran past, the leashes were released 
and the dusky air was pierced with the sound of snapping teeth and snarling dogs and a high-pitched, spine-tingling squeal. The poor hare was tossed into the air like a rag toy, her white fur flecked with red. She landed not back on the ground, but on top of the hedge. And summoning the last of her strength, she scampered painfully along the thorny vegetation until eventually reaching the safety of the trees and disappeared into the darkness. The desperate hunters and their dogs searched and sniffed for an hour or more until finally admitting defeat, they made their way back to the old woman's cottage to retrieve their tools. But when they arrived, the door of the cottage was ajar. They peered inside and their faces quickly drained of colour. There, lying on the floor in a mangled heap with torn clothes and bleeding body, was the old white-haired woman. Mixture of guilt and fear, the men grabbed their tools and quickly ran from the cottage, all of them except one of them, the youngest of the four, realised, thankfully, that the woman was still breathing. He wrapped her in a woollen blanket, lifted her body as light as a sparrow, and laid her down onto the bed and held her head as he gave her a sip of water from a clay cup. All night he stayed by her bedside, and in the pale morning light she opened bruised eyes opened her lips and told the young man how to make medicine from healing herbs in jars on shelves around her room. And the next few days he came back each evening to the cottage to make more medicine, to light the fire, bring her food from the village. After a week, she started to regain her strength. Her wounds were beginning to heal. Sitting up, she looked at him with a glint in her green eyes and with a wrinkled smile. She forgave them their actions and released him from his duties. From that day, the villagers of Little Breedy never hunted the white hare again, but it's said she can still be seen on misty evenings in autumn. And if you're out and about on the ridgeway, by the light of a harvest moon, you might catch a glimpse of white fur flashing across the fields. So I've now come out of the hollow way. The rain has stopped. I'm able to walk for a while across the, the high ground and to feel this, the sense of space and the, and the air is back again. And a chance for me to enjoy autumn. I, I suppose we all connect with the seasons in different ways and we have our own preferences, but I love autumn. I, I feel that coming out of summer, which can either feel quite frenzied, we're supposed to be doing stuff or going on holiday, and then it's, it's all a bit stagnant and uh, nothing's growing anymore, but nothing's quite changing either birds have stopped singing but then suddenly the autumn brings all that sense of change and movement to freshening of the air and the, the dying back down into the earth the colors all around the, the bronze really vivid color of the bracken here metallic color the the trees have their leaves just starting to fall but many of them have just gone this really deep dark green cracked and crinkled at the edges like an old sofa in the back room of a pub and it allows me to feel a sense of emotion as well. This is a kind of release when it comes to autumn. As, as things start to die back down, we can sort of become in touch with our own emotions, that, that sense of the cycling of the year, things dying back so that they can eventually come back again in the spring. I like that. Um, but also there's a time of year when there's so much folklore. I suppose liminal times of the year, that the change periods do invoke a lot of folklore. Uh, October, of course, has got Samhain or Halloween uh, and all the 
rich associations of folklore coming with that. It's a time, they say, when the veil between the worlds is stretched thin. And right now, today, at the beginning of October, on the 1st of October for me here, and it's actually um, a harvest moon tonight. Normally the, the harvest moon is in September, towards the end of September, but it's actually the closest full moon to the autumn equinox, and this year, in 2020, it's on the 1st of October. Uh, I don't think we're going to see it tonight. I think there's so many thick clouds and more rain to come. I don't think I'll see it. So unlike the four farm workers who were lit, helpfully by the full moon, to go out hunting, and of course, famously, the harvest moon was there to help people carry on working in the fields. The harvest moon rises quite quickly after the sunset, so there's a continuous amount of light in in the sort of early evenings at this time of year. And a couple of days before harvest moon, a couple of days ago, was... Michaelmas Day, St Michael's Day and that's famous folklore wise and association with the landscape because it's the day when the devil spits or if you uh, prefer spits or piddles, peas on the blackberries and looking around at the blackberries around this hill they do look pretty bedeviled, they are looking sad and sloppy and very much spat or piddled on uh, and not very appetising at all Although those of you like me who like to follow the old calendar of customs, of course the calendar changed only as recently as 1752 uh, from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar. If you want to follow the old calendar then of course you've got till the 10th of October when old Michaelmas Day is. And in most years I would be using that as my guidance for when I stop picking blackberries because there's still usually plenty around and there probably are still a few around but just here on the higher ground at least they look pretty miserable so I'm certainly not going to be picking those I'll leave them to the devil the story goes that the devil uh, was thrown out of heaven by Saint Michael and when he landed on the earth he landed in a thorny patch of bramble and he was so disgusted with the plant and with his landing that he cursed it and from then on on Saint Michael's Day Michaelmas Day he he spits or befouls the blackberries it does feel pretty chill in the air and um, a devilish breeze it does feel quite sort of a night where the devil might appear and I've come to a crossroads on the top there and the devil of course is famous for appearing at crossroads as you will hear in in a minute when I tell you a story but um, because it's a bit cold and breezy there I'm stepping off the path and down towards uh, a little patch of woodland um, that's called Sadness Cops another <laughs> amazing name um it's been a place that i've come quite a lot in the last six months i came here quite early into lockdown as just a little bit of refuge to get my head together a lovely space to sit sometimes i'd light a little contained fire and sit by the fire and collect my thoughts and gather myself and then after lockdown eased a little came up here with a with a group of friends and we'd sit especially in the evenings, and just um, you can see out through the trees. There's a bit of a view, but there's also a feeling of being held by the trees, really, being sheltered, and we would tell a few tales and catch up with each other. I'm back in this copse, and, and so it now feels like a rather positive place, a good place for me to be, and we started to call it, rather than sadness copse, we've started to call it leave your sadness copse. So I feel happy here, despite the... The talk of the devil, happy enough to feel safe to tell you a story about the devil. And once in Old Dorset there was a fine fiddle player 
He was always in great demand to play at parties and weddings and seasonal celebrations, community gatherings of every kind, and wherever he played, the people responded with dancing feet and with clapping hands, and soon he was renowned across the whole of the county. One day, the fiddle player was asked to play at a wedding in a town at the other side of the county, far away from his own home, and so in order to arrive in time, he set off the day before. With a pack upon his back, with his fiddle tucked underneath his arm, he walked slowly, enjoying the sights and scenery of the countryside in autumn, until eventually he came in the owl light at dusk to a crossroads, and there suddenly he saw, standing by the crossroads, a tall, dark stranger, smartly dressed with a supercilious smile and glinting eyes, the smell of mouldering earth and smoky fires. Good evening, said the stranger. I'm looking for a fiddle player. Are you available? And the fiddle player said, well, I am a fiddle player. I'm heading to another town for a, a party to play it. Well, tonight you can come and stay and play with me before he knew it. He was taken by the hand away from the crossroads onto a winding track through the trees and soon the snagging branches were catching at his clothes and cutting his skin. He began to think that this was a very bad idea altogether on a dark and stormy night but then the copse opened out into a clearing and there, rising up from the ground, was a magnificent mansion of black gleaming marble like frozen midnight. Uh, there were oaken doors in the mansion and great brass knockers the host of the house pulled out a key and turned it in the lock and opened up into a magnificent ballroom there was a shining chandelier of a thousand candles and tables around the rooms overflowing with fine food and wine and in the middle was a dance floor of perfectly polished portland stone play said the stranger to the fiddler but there's no one here said the fiddler play and they will come the fiddler a little frightened did exactly as he was told he picked up his fiddle lifted up his bow and began to play as soon as he started to play the guests began to arrive lords and ladies dressed in all their finery with flowing gowns and top hats and tails and as soon as they stepped onto the dance floor they began to dance to the marvellous music of the fiddle player but as more guests arrived, the fiddle player noticed that they went over to the side of the doorway and there was a stone basin and they dipped their hands into a liquid in the basin and wiped it across their eyes. Now the curiosity was kindled in the fiddle player's mind and so pretending to be dancing as well as playing, he edged his way towards the doorway and there with a the down stroke of his bow he scooped a little liquid into his hand and wiped it across his left eye. And when he looked again with that left eye, he saw a very different scene. The magnificent mansion was in fact just a cold, craggy cave covered with moss and dripping with green slime. The tables were covered with rotting food and meat crawling with maggots, the wine bottles filled with yellow, stinking pond water. Worst of all, the lords and ladies were in fact devils and demons with scaly skin and swishing tails, little horns upon their heads. And as for the host of the house, he was none other than old Scratch, old Nick, the devil himself with brightly burning eyes and a black slug of a tongue which slithered across his lips. The fiddler was terrified but he had to pretend that he hadn't seen anything and carried on playing for as long as he could and just as his arms were aching so much they felt they could go no further the 
host of the house, the devil himself, called a halt. He dismissed the other demons with a sweep of his arms, and then he looked at the fiddle player and said, You have played well, and so you will be paid well. He snapped his fingers, and there appeared on the floor a great wooden chest. As he lifted the lid, the fiddle player could see gleaming gold coins, but as he looked with his left eye, he saw that they were, in fact, rocks and bones and pieces of broken teeth. No thanks, said the fiddle player. They will be too heavy in my pockets. I'll just be leaving now. You must be paid, said the devil. Once more, he clicked his fingers. Another chest appeared. As he opened, the fiddle player saw piles of paper money. But when he looked with his left eye, this time he saw pieces of dried skin, some still with the hair standing up on end. No, thank you. It would blow away in the wind. I really must be going. You will be paid. The third time, the devil stamped his foot and there a third chest appeared. As he lifted it up, the fiddle player saw silver coins. And as he looked with his left eye, he saw silver coins. So he thrust his hand into the pile and pulled out three handfuls of silver coins, pushed them into his pockets, and then turned on his heels and ran out of the cave, through the dark woods, back to the crossroads, and turned left, and ran through the rest of the night and into the dawn until he arrived at the town. And later that day, there was a wedding and afterwards another party with fine guests and fine food and fine wine. The fiddle player looked with his left eye and it was all fine. And everybody that heard the fiddle player play that night, they muttered and shook their heads and said that all of his tunes were devilishly good. I guess you should always be careful telling stories about the devil. I, I thought something might happen at some point. I've come off the, the Holloway by the farm and then I've ended up going a bit lost in the in the dusky twilight and gone through a massive patch of very wet bracken and tall nettles, which has been quite a painful, so feeling a bit <laughs> stung and, uh, yeah, whether I should have been telling stories about the devil. But I've come to another very special place. In fact, I'm actually in a little church now. It's at the far end of Bothenhampton village. There is uh, a, more, a more modern church, but it's still quite an old church that is, is used for services. This one isn't used. It's very small. I wonder whether it's just the remnant of, of an old church. And it's set in the most special, peaceful uh, graveyard. Um, it's got a huge yew tree, which makes me think very much that this possibly was a, a place of spiritual significance before even the church was built, the, the yew tree being long been a symbol of everlasting life of renewal and and planted or at least invoked in that sense. Um but I also think in the in a graveyard like this that the old ways and the and the relative new ways of Christianity kind of exist really really well together. And I'm feeling happy to be here after that little trip and stumble through the wet stinging nettles and just to sit down the church is open again it was closed quite quite a while ago um during the worst of the lockdown but i'm on my own in almost complete darkness now um but just a little gray glimmer through the doorway i'm feeling a thankful that this little refuge is here in my home patch and i come here often i've actually got 
friends who have a couple of relatives buried here, so it's a little bit poignant. I always think about them when I come here and go and look at their little graveside. Um, and that, of course, makes me also think about my ancestors, my, my relatives that have passed away. And the other final thing about this time of year, uh, the end of October and going into November, is it's a place and a time to remember those that have passed away. Of course, there's the, the Day of the Dead in, in Mexico, but here the, the All Hallows Eve and then going into All Souls Day, so All, All Saints Day on the 1st of November, All Souls Day on the 2nd of November, it's, it's just the perfect time to be thinking about those who have passed away. And, and again, the sense of the autumn season being not just about death and decay, but about seeds being sown and the, and the turning of the cycle of the year. It makes, again, very poignant and special time of year to think. And to hold a candle, I've just lit a little flame so that I can remember my uh, dear ones. And in particular, as I mentioned, coming past the farm, my grandparents that were very special to me. Uh, and about 20-odd years ago, I did a little oral history with my grandfather, in particular, and my grandmother as well, with a little tape deck, shows how old <laughs> that was, just recording and talking in everyday life about farming, about folklore, about food, about everything that was just part of their life. And it was very special. I still got it. I still listen to it. I made a little show, storytelling show, based on their words and also some folk tales from Lancashire where they lived where I was brought up and now I'm thinking about them again with the turkeys from the farm and in the churchyard here with other people's relatives laid to rest and a little story that comes to mind that I recorded I don't tell it very often but uh, at the very end of my grandfather's time on the farm as a working farmer he was a tenant farmer so he didn't own the the house itself and had to leave and it was one thing, leaving the farm and giving up farming. He was old enough and aching in the bones. He needed to, to, to retire, but he couldn't bear the idea of leaving the land. Well, luckily enough, there was, in fact, two tied cottages on, on, the, on the farmland. And eventually managed to persuade the, the landowners and raise enough money through selling the fixtures of the farm. Three generations, his father and his father before him, and the final sale of the cattle and the livestock, and got enough money to get a deposit and to get to buy uh, one of those little tied cottages, and that's where he lived. And at the time when he moved over from the big farmhouse into the little cottage, he had a dog. He always had working dogs, a sheepdog. Uh, and this one, his, his last one, was called Laddie. And Laddie was still young, even though old Tom, my grandfather, was old. Laddie was still a young, fit, feisty, working dog. And he felt bad that now he was contained to just pottering around the garden, growing potatoes and dahlias and watching the football on the telly. The dog didn't have enough work. And then one day... The dog, as he was in the garden, just ducked underneath the fence and went across the fields and disappeared. And first Tom was concerned. He shouted for the dog and it didn't come back. At the end of the day, and he was feeling that maybe the dog had been hurt or caught or trapped somewhere. And then that evening there was a call from a neighbouring farmer. His, his name was Aubrey. And he said, Tom, I'm getting your dog here. It's been with me all day. It's a grand dog. It's been doing a good job helping me with the sheep. And Tom paused for a minute as he listened to that. And as his head recognised, even though his heart didn't want to, that the dog should stay with the neighbouring farmer. He said, take it, take the dog, it, it needs to work, please take it. Are you sure? Yes. And so Laddie, old Tom's dog, went to work and live on the neighbouring farm, and a few years went by, and occasionally perhaps he saw the dog and certainly saw the farmer to say hello and check in. 
But then one autumn, maybe three years later, a misty morning, as he opened the door of his little cottage to go and work in the garden, there was Laddie the dog standing on the doorway, looking up, wagging its tail. And all day the, the dog stayed with Tom and he, he was grateful to have the company of the dog again, but feeling that he should be back, but didn't need to worry. The dog ducked away at the end of the day and off to cross the fields. But the next morning, the dog was back again. And this time, the dog didn't just sit on the doorstep. The dog ran in to the house and through the kitchen and into the, the front parlour and started to stare and then howl at a spot on the wall just by the fireplace. And Tom had to chase the dog out and didn't know what was going on. The third day, the dog came again, the same thing, through the kitchen, into the parlour and scratching at the surface. Now, Tom's curiosity was kindled and he knew something was going on. And as he let the dog go back out of the kitchen, he went into the tool shed, brought out a hammer and chisel and began to knock at the plaster against the wall by the fireplace. And sure enough, there was a hollow sound at one point in the fireplace. And he chiseled away that plaster and there beneath the plaster was a loose brick. It wasn't mortared in. And using his fat farming fingers, he managed to pull out the brick and put his hands inside and he found a little tin box. And inside the tin box was some dress jewellery where there was a gold ring or two. There was pearl earrings and there was a necklace with, with jewels. And it wasn't a fortune, but he later was able to sell those jewels and make a little money so that he could do up the old cottage and so live in a little comfort in the end of his life. But a couple of days later, after finding the box, he, of course, wanted to tell his neighbour, Aubrey, the farmer, that his dog had found this treasure in his own house and what a wonderful dog it was. But as he called him up, the, the phone on the other end of the line went still and quiet. And then there was a cough as Aubrey said, I'm sorry, Tom, I, I meant to call you a few days ago, but... Your dog died. It died a week ago. Well, Tom loved to tell that story. I, I heard him tell it once. And then when he died, it was only about 18 months after that incident. My nana took over the mantle. My grandmother, who was a great storyteller and lived for another 20 years, she only died quite recently. And, but now she's gone. And so I've got the story. And it's um, part of my repertoire, I suppose, part of my connection to both people and place. And I've told the story to you now. And I, I've got a feeling as a storyteller, and again, invoking this time of year, that as long as you remember somebody, then they're never really dead. So with that final story, I'm going to leave this lovely little old church. It's now very dark, so I'm going to... Um, blow out my light and just walk gently into the dark and go home and hope very much that there's a, a roaring fire and a, a glass of something nice to drink and I shall um, toast my ancestors. I shall um, raise a little glass to the unseen things that are beyond the veil and I shall wish you all a very happy autumn. Well, I love that. Thank you to Martin Maudsley for those charming and chilling tales and for braving the twilight world of spirits and devils. You can find out much more about Martin and his stories at his website, martinmaudsley.co.uk and I'm sure he'll be back for some podcasts in the future. I hope you enjoyed this piece of magic. Please do leave some feedback and reviews on whatever podcast provider you use. To get a bit of feedback makes our lives so much happier. 
And you can email me, FergusCollins, at this address, editor at countryfile.com. I love to get your emails, and I try to reply to every single one. We'll be back next week with an interview with another hero of mine, Horrible Histories detectress and Paddington 2 actor and legend Simon Farnaby. Simon has written a children's book that combines his love of countryside and history, where a Dark Age wizard is transported into 21st century Britain. Find out more in episode 6 of the podcast. So you've been listening to the BBC Countryfile magazine podcast, produced by Jack Bateman. Thanks for listening, and goodbye for now.